So, let, oh shoot, I haven't done this in a while. Okay. So I want to welcome to the pod, Janella Massa, who is the first news anchor in North America to host her own news show in a hijab. She is also, as I found out, Afro-Latina, Panamanian, I believe. Yes. And so please, please welcome Janella, who I'm so excited to have on this show because I have been, you know, like I've known you for a bit. And by the way, my parents say hi. They're big fans. Hello to Erica's parents. Yeah. Yeah. The Eiffels will appreciate that. <laughs> Hello to the Eiffels. So you have been, so you're no longer on Canada Tonight, which was your flagship show. Um, I have been on there a few times. And what I love about your show was that you started changing who an expert looked like. Hmm. You know, and I missed that. I'm that I'm just saying I miss it. And so yeah. and I saw that and I'm like, look at Janella go. Look at her being a little subversive. I like it. You know? And so it's so funny because, you know, I hear people say things like that all the time, like, oh my gosh, your show was so different. It was so radical. And to me, I'm like, it wasn't that different. <laughs> I, it was. Like when I think about what we were doing, you know, to me, I it always felt like it wasn't enough. And so it's so surprising to me wow. to hear people say that that my show was so different. And I guess it's that it looked different. It looked different because of who we spoke to. But we were talking about all of the same things for the most part. Like 95% of our content was whatever you yes. But because you chose who you spoke to, you got uh, uh, a different perspective. Not even different. But like it was just a little bit more nuanced in that because you brought over those people. And, and nuance is something depending on who it's coming from. Right? Yeah, exactly. And nuance is something, as you know, we're missing. Yeah, yeah there's not always a lot for nuance in daily news. Absolutely not. So I really love your TikToks. Janella is doing some wicked TikToks. I feel like you're free now. You're free, Janella. <laughs> again, once again, uh, you know, it's so interesting because it's so ingrained in me. I still feel myself hesitating and being careful and choosing my words and, you know, not still not posting as much and everything that I would like to, mm -hmm. um, but trying to open up a different conversation. That, yeah, I probably wouldn't have had um, if I was still, uh, you know, with a public broadcaster and recognizing the power in these mediums um recognizing you know uh, that people want this kind of information they want this kind of context they want these explainers in in bite-sized ways we have to meet people where they are we have to speak in their language oh my um, god hallelujah <laughs> and you know that is one of the that was one of my challenges um uh you know where i was working was was you know um with legacy media and with traditional media um, even when they do want to get on TikTok or they do want to get on social media, they want to just so bad. pull from the, the, the broadcast and, yes. and slap it onto TikTok. And it's like, that's not how that works. You have to be intentional in the voice that you're using uh, on these platforms because otherwise it just feels like, you know, grandpa <laughs> at the school dance trying to be cool, right? It is grandpa. They yeah. don't even they don't even match up the dimensions on portrait role. <laughs> I'm just like, why is everything spilling over? I'm like, oh, you didn't adjust the dim you didn't even adjust the like seriously. Anyway, I hear it's, you. it's just such an afterthought, which to yeah. me is crazy in 2023 that our digital presence uh is an afterthought. It should be First and foremost, it should be, you know, the driving force of, of the content. Um, but it, it's baffling that it's not. So explain to us why mainstream media still matters in like, <laughs> yeah, like in, in a couple sentences, like, you know, you have a brilliant TikTok on it, which I will yeah. get to. 
Um, but you know, just distill it. Yeah, I'll give you the cold notes version. Yeah. So yes, I did a video on um, even though I'm you know pre- present on social media, um, mainstream media does still matter to the powers that be. Um, you know, there was a lot of conversation around you know one of my one of my other posts about uh, about mainstream media. People saying, well, mainstream media is dead. You know, we shouldn't even bother engaging with it. We shouldn't listen to it. We shouldn't care what they're saying. Everyone's on social media. So they're irrelevant, right? And the reason that they're not irrelevant is because of who mainstream media still, who still consumes mainstream media. And that particular group is the group that is also, you know, a voting, a a strong voting block. So I know, you know, at CBC, we knew our audience was 60 plus and white. That was not a secret. And it was not even 50 plus. (laughs) They yeah. lost the fifty-year-old. Yeah, I mean, don't quote me on that, but I'm it was. Just, it was sorry, up, numbers were up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so you know that was an audience that they were scared of losing. So that was an that's the audience that they continue to speak to. Um, and to that end, you know, in terms of politicians, when you're watching what's happening, you know, overseas and why, uh, why they're not budging on this is because, um, you know, folks who consume mainstream media maybe feel like this has nothing to do with them. They don't care enough about this. Those are folks that vote. Um, so we're talking, you know, upper uh, upper middle class, white folks, homeowners, voters. And so, you know, this is a powerful uh, voting block. And so, um, you know, politicians and people who make decisions care about what they think. And what they think is impacted by what they see on mainstream media. And so... That's why it still matters what is being broadcast through mainstream stream media and and, you know, what narratives are pushed and and how the status quo kind of remains. Right. So how does new media now compare to that? I mean, I think young people are. Or is it just like a demographic thing? I, I, I think a little bit of both. I mean, when I say young, I, I mean, I, I'm talking like under 40. Yeah. Um, five. Um, young people are. Um, they're they're desperate for more. They want to understand. They said, you know, people keep telling me this thing is really complicated. Let me let me try to figure out. And realizing, oh, it's actually not that complicated. Once I, um, you know, take a little bit of time and and finding, you know, it's so funny watching these videos of people finding information that has been there all along. Like a guy who posted a video who was like, you know, I I heard. Uh, that they shut off the water in Gaza and it made me think, oh, why is the water, why is Israel controlling the water in Gaza? And then I found this article from Amnesty International from like 2016 that explained how they not just, you know, own the infrastructure, but they also have rules in place to say they can't build new infrastructure. And they have, and he, you know, he was reading all this stuff and just like his mind was blown because yeah. it was there. It yeah. was out. He just had to Google it and he'd been told all along this is really complicated. You don't understand. This goes back so many years, blah, blah, blah. When it was like, no, actually, there's all these uh, legitimate sources <laughs> that have been saying this, but they just haven't been spoken about uh, in in mainstream. In mainstream. And yes. so people are realizing that there is so much out there. Um, and, and now, you know, there's less gatekeeping, right? Before it was that traditional media were the gatekeepers to knowledge and information to what's happening overseas that is no longer the case and people are realizing uh i can get information on my own yeah and i find i find that there's a gatekeeping of language too Mm -hmm. and um so just this morning i saw a cbc journalist like talk about the giller prize Mm -hmm. and the um how if you guys don't know protesters who were calling for a ceasefire interrupted the presentation of the Giller Prize in Toronto and they were arrested. Mm -hmm. And my question then becomes, A, arrested for what? For interrupting people's dinner? Like, come on. And But the second thing is, like, this is playing over and over and over and over on social media and it does make it seem like there is a difference in the power structure and how these people that you're talking about whether it's directors and institutions 
but they are decision makers in some way, capable, like some way, shape, or form. And what I find is that anytime there's civil disobedience, these are the people that want the police to come in and just clear, clear the area, so to speak. Mm-hmm. There's and we see like- that in Washington, and that happened in Washington. So can you talk a little bit about the protests and the pro collection? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a, a tone policing. There's certainly a, a, a policing of like, oh, well, we have to do this in a civilized way. Um, you know, uh, like uh, that there is only one way to express your outrage and your anger. And I think what's frustrating to a lot of folks is that we've, you know, folks say we've tried to have the civilized conversation. We've tried to ask. We've tried to ask nicely. We've tried to have the discourse. Actually, where we start. Okay. Right. Exactly. This isn't. And, and and so, you know, then it's like, you know, I was watching um, if you watch the morning show uh, on Apple TV with the. Uh, Jennifer Anderson, there's a line where she says in this in the second episode where she goes, you know, you try to ask nicely like an adult and no one listens. Why do I have to set things on fire? And it's exactly that. Right. It's like no one listens when people try to talk nicely, when people ask nightly, when they write petitions and when they, you know, then they go to the streets and they protest and then that's not good. And then they say, OK, and I'm going to throw paint on your on your your business. And then suddenly it's like. The, the pearl clutching, right? And um and like, me, yeah, yeah. It's like there's so much room for outrage over mm-hmm. civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. Where is the outrage for babies in incubators being bombed? Where is the outrage for refugee camps uh, being targeted? Where is the outrage? You know what I mean? And so that is frustrating because there's so much oxygen and air <laughs> to talk about whether or not, um, you know, Hamas is in the olive trees. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I was like, why are you bombing all in trees? <laughs> right. Well, I was going to say that there's so much oxygen. Like, I had a whole conversation on, on AM radio about the, the baristas being scared. And, and, you know, and he seemed so concerned for the baristas. And I thought, where is the concern for the de- the 10,000? Well, now 15 or whatever the number is now. I can't even, I've lost track. 15,000 dead civilians, right? And that's where, like, to me, that disconnect is so mind-boggling. Like the things that we um, cherish and hold dear as a society. Like I keep hearing, you know, oh, in a in a you know civil society, in a, you know there are rules. Uh, I don't know if you saw that video of um, a senator who was confronted on a train by a guy who happened to be sitting across from him. And oh yes, yes, that guy. That was. And fun. he's like, um, sir, why? Also on TikTok, people. Also on TikTok. Why would you call for a ceasefire? Why would you call for a ceasefire? And he's like, please stop talking to me. Please stop talking to me. This is a, and he's like, this is the quiet car. This is the quiet car and you're disrupting me. And, you know, there are rules in a civil society. And he's like, yeah, there's also rules in war. And what happening is happening is a war crime. You're more upset that I'm disrupting the quiet car mm-hmm. than you are about war crimes. And so <laughs> this is the part that I, you know, this, the, as I said, this tone policing, this, this idea that we have to, you know, um, behave in a certain way and be polite. And it's like that has proven to not work. That has proven to not be effective. You have made that not effective. Right. And so you've you've pushed people to the place where we say, if is this the only way you're going to pay attention to us? Is this the only way we're going to talk about this? Then that's what's going to happen. I am here for civil disobedience. Okay. Because there are greater evils. I don't know when we became so sadistic, to be honest. It is sickening to see how people in media can roll over the fact that there's a genocide happening. And these aren't my words. These are the words of the UN. I don't hold ready as a thing. They will not call it genocide. And Mm -hmm. until some other body... Right. And so, you know, I, I've heard these debates in newsrooms, right, is that newsrooms won't call it genocide because uh, when you look at the textbook definition, uh, the one piece that's missing is intent. Right. And so, <laughs> yeah. And so who gets to decide if, you know, if as long as Israel and IDF says they don't they're not intending uh, to target civilians, that is just the collateral damage, the unfortunate consequence of them going after Hamas then it's not a genocide. So at what point or who gets to um, step back and objectively say, 
uh, or, or raise a question and say, hang on a second, right? Um, Sorry, let me, let me yeah. say this, okay? Thinking, if you are a getaway driver in a robbery, right? Right. And you didn't intend for somebody to get killed, but one of your people killed somebody, you're still going to, to prison for the robbery and the murder. Yes. See what I'm saying here? Yeah. I know it's not the exact analogy, but I like intent is the difference between manslaughter and first degree murder kind of thing. Yeah. Like exactly. people are still dying. Yeah. That is my point. And, and I it is also, because of their actions that people are dying. That is my point. This, this idea to push off responsibility of dead people that you've dropped bombs on while it's Hamas's fault. No, it's not. You did that. It's also this, it also raises this question around um who is a reliable narrator, who is a reliable source. And whose um, whose uh, words are treated with skepticism and whose aren't, right? And it's interesting because, like, we had this conversation. We had this conversation three years ago um, with George Floyd. We had this conversation about, um, you know, uh, folks who are the victims of racism and, and taking their word at it as, at, you know, as a reliable narrator. And the sort of institutional voices uh, uh, that tell a story and accepting it at face value. And we came to learn that. Um, you know, the official police narrative, if you were to believe the press release that had come from police, uh, it would not we would not have known what had happened to George Floyd had it not been for a bystander who had recorded the incident. Right. And so it, 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 you know, sparked a conversation around the fact that we should be as skeptical of institutions and, and try to find out our own truth. Um, as we are to the people who are suffering in, in, in you know, in that case, it was a uh, uh, black people saying we are experiencing racism and, and institutions constantly saying, oh, well, you can't prove it. Uh, the police yeah. say it was racism. So I guess it was right. And so we're in a similar st- scenario here where um, Palestinians are saying we are suffering. We are suffering. And, um, you know, an institutional power in a government is saying, oh, well, we're not doing it on purpose. Oh, well, it's not our intent. And we just accept that narrative. At it, no, no, no. Intent in the proper definition of discrimination is not a factor. Mm-hmm. It is the outcome. Mm-hmm. Sure, I didn't intend to kill you, but I pulled the trigger. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, I, this makes no sense to me. Yeah. And that, you know, that also raises the question about, so, okay, if... if it's like racism find... itself, right? It, <laughs> yeah. It, oh, did you... I didn't intend to be racist, so I was at crisis. I didn't right. intend to be a misogynist, so I wasn't a misogynist. That's right. bullshit. Mm-hmm. But to that end, so so the, on the question about, you know, being skeptical. OK, if we're going to be skeptical, let's be skeptical across the board, because the reality is we can't verify uh, what, you know, uh, uh, the Israeli government is saying. We, we're taking them at face value and we can't verify what's happening uh, in Gaza. And why can't we? The reason is there are no international journalists in Gaza. And that's that's on purpose. Right. Um, there are no witness witnesses to what is happening. The best thing would be if we were able to say, okay, IDF says, uh, you know, there are tunnels under the hospital. We're going to go and, and investigate and look for ourselves and tell you what we find. And we can't do that because there aren't, aren't international journalists. And the, and the local voices that are there are dismissed because they are uh, local Palestinians, most of them, many of them. And, on, and the few that have been there have been mostly killed. There were 50 journalists in Gaza, and I think almost 40 of them are now dead in a month. Imagine that. Yeah. Imagine that. Why is that? The rate of deaths of journalists in Gaza should really... I. It's amazing to me, and this is how silence is a weapon, and it's amazing to me that all of these people talking about every other issue having to do with this war have the journalists in this country have been silent about the journalists killed in Gaza and it's like they don't even factor it's like they don't even factor into the in the community of journalists because they're Palestinians Mm -hmm. but nobody else is on the ground because nobody else is allowed in Gaza except if you're CNN and embedded in IDF patrols and, and as I've said, 
they have to um, approve the footage that, that gets put out. Like that goes against journalism 101. That's not journalism. That is not journalism. Bar. That's propaganda. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's, it's wild to me. And it just goes to show what I see is journalism, like traditional media, not making the case of why anybody else should find them. Yeah. And that's a business model I don't understand. And I've had folks reach out to me who say, I, I feel like leaving. I feel like quitting. I feel complicit in what's happening. And I cannot morally stand by um, and be a part of this, right? And that this idea of, well, let's bring diversity representation into the newsroom and at least we can change it from within. Like it, it's become, it doesn't hold water. It doesn't hold water anymore. No, because, you can't change it from within like that. I'm sorry. Well, this is just it, is that there is so much institutional pressure. And also when you're alone or you're one of a few or you are um, a freelancer or, you know, your work is precarious or... You know, all of these things that keep you um, from being able to speak up. You don't have the power to. You're just a writer. You're just a producer. Um, you know, keep you from speaking up. Um, it becomes so difficult to be that dissenting voice in the newsroom and to challenge the, the narrative. And on top of that, you know, I think what a lot of people don't realize, you know, some of it is not nefarious. Some of it is not, oh, we have an agenda. Some of it is literally just uneducated people in newsrooms who don't have a basic understanding of what is happening and they get intimidated by the mob that comes down on uh the newsroom whenever uh you know certain language is used or certain mm-hmm. printing is done and because we know there are groups that um their goal is to essentially uh, uh bury a newsroom in in emails um when they're criticized um, and they get intimidated by that. And because they don't know better and they haven't done any research and they don't they're not equipped to push back, um, they operate from a place of fear. And so, you know, I've heard a lot of that is like people changing scripts. And it's like, no, that's actually incorrect. Like what you've changed it to is actually incorrect. And like hosts or, or producers just not having basic knowledge of this international issue. You know what what? I found pretty pathetic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My harsh language is going to say that. Um, what is pathetic is how they how they've muddled around with the words from the river to the sea, Palestine mm-hmm. will be free. I have never seen such terrible reporting on that issue. I mean they're like i will say so they did a story on it i think yesterday or two days ago oh i just talked a week before that so <laughs> okay because it it's it's mind-boggling to me okay yeah I stay hang around with these palestinian guys in um in university because they were o- the only ones who watched um premier league football okay <laughs> they were the only ones it was it was the palestinians and the greater arab guys right so we used to like sit down and watch like the World Cup and stuff like that, right? And I remember hearing these words before, right? So I remember that. And I remember asking one of them, I was like, what does that mean? And he's like, it means liberation. Because mm-hmm. if you look at Gaza and no, if you look at the Palestinian quote unquote territories, the occupied yeah. territories, um, if you look at the West Bank, and you look at Gaza, there is there is no contiguous land, people. That's right. Okay? And you know when I realized this? Okay, you all have to watch FADA on Netflix. This is when oh, yeah. I realized that. Now, FADA is from the perspective of Israeli IDF soldiers. However, it does provide a greater Palestinian story. And it humanizes Palestinians, I think, more so than other shows. Whereas yeah. Palestinians are more flat characters that are just terrorists. Because that's what we've put into media since 9-11. Yeah. By the yep. way, um, so tell us about From the River to the Sea. Yeah, so I did a video on the th- And it's so funny because I had the same thought. I've been hearing this chant for like 20 years. 
you know, I heard it when I was a kid and, you know, we hear these protests. So in my mind, I that's how I always assumed. That's what I always assumed it meant. It, it was a call for freedom, a call for liberation. So I was actually genuinely surprised the first time I heard someone say, oh, that's a Hamas rallying cry. That's a Hamas chant. That's an anti-Semitic call for genocide. And I was like, really? Where, where'd you get that? Where'd you get that from? So I started to do a deep dive to figure out, like, when did this change? Because it wasn't a problem until suddenly it was, right? And I saw that the ADL had changed, that's the Anti-Defamation League, had added this to their website in 2021. So that was interesting to me. Um, I do understand that it Thank is. You. Yeah. I, can it I is, just, let me just yeah. say what they said. From the river to okay. the sea, Palestine will be free is an anti-Semitic slogan commonly featured in anti-Israel campaigns and chanted at demonstrations. Oh, I see what's happening here. Yeah. Did you? Sorry. I just got a, I, I was like, oh, it just came together. Of course. Yeah. It's all about the protests. Yeah. Right. It's so all about delegitimizing these protests. For sure. For sure. Okay. Right. Go ahead. And so, so I understand that some folks refer to it because uh, those words appear in the charter Hamas uh, in the Hamas charter, but that's from 2017. But the the slogan, uh, it's it originated from the PLO and the and like back yes, in the Arafat, yeah, PLO, Arafat. PLO. Yeah, that's right. Palestinian Liberation Organization. That's right. And so you know he later, uh, uh, you know, uh, he got a peace prize for for. Um, you know, his work in, in trying to bring a two-state solution, right? Um, and so I guess, and you know, in the CBC article, actually, the CBC story uh, that that uh, they did a story on From the River to the Sea, you know, they even conclude that inherently it's not anti-Semitic or not a call for genocide, but it means different things to different people. <laughs> and um, And that, you know, depending on when and how it's used, um, some could find it uh, intimidating um but interestingly as i noted in my in my piece and actually cbc does as well a variation of from from the river to the sea is used in the israeli leading parties uh um documents and so you know they just again they just changed palestine to israel that's basically all they did when is it a call for genocide uh is it because of who is saying it and this is something that I had raised in one of the in one of my media interviews was we feel um, threatened. Um, why do we feel threatened? We were talking about the about the the aroma boycotts uh, mm. that folks felt threatened by the the angry mob out. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, what is it that makes us feel threatened? And, and is it the people? Um, is it because a group of brown people are outside chanting? Um, you know, there was a very similar thing with Black Lives Matter. People felt threatened by Black Lives Matter? Um, and is it because brown and black bodies are inherently threatening to you? And in your mind, uh, there is a, an inherent connection to violence or connotation of violence? Um, oh, black I, I, and brown I, I, people are inherently violent is basically mm-hmm. the underlying message of that is mm-hmm. basically what you're saying. Okay. I accept mm-hmm. Um, because it is true. This is, this is, this goes back generations and since slavery times, we were all, it's funny how people fighting for liberation are the violent ones. Well, it's easy not to be violent when, and the entire system is made for you. Yeah. How nice for you. And when you ask nicely, people listen. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, so I, what did sorry i forgot what i was going to pivot to <laughs> that's okay and you were going to say something about what you were afraid of oh you know what makes you know what makes me afraid when when the head of aroma cafe the founder the owner he's he said some anti-black massage noir things about black women mm-hmm. well i don't feel safe going about there. aroma cafe and to, and to the point about Romo Cafe, and let's talk about boycotts for a second, because those those have been also labeled as anti-Semitic. Um, we're not talking about little mom and pop shops, okay? We're talking about major uh, uh, corporations. Uh, chapters uh, doesn't count. Us, what's that? <laughs> chapters doesn't count. 
chapters doesn't count. And I'll talk about chapters in a second. Aroma specifically, uh, the owner um, is not Jewish. He's Israeli and he's a former uh, IDF reservist. And Aroma has uh, locations in um, illegal settlements. That is why calls there were calls to boycott Aroma Cafe. Indigo, uh, 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 yes, Heather Reisman is Jewish, but Indigo is not being targeted because Heather Reisman is Jewish. Indigo is being targeted because Heather Reisman run a charity that funds non-Israelis who want to go fight in the army who are now committing genocide in Gaza. That is why Indigo is being targeted oh. and boycotted. So I, I always... But it's labeled as anti-Semitic yeah. yeah. Jewish target. I listen. Once you lose, once you lose the mommy type going to Starbucks, okay. Like once you once you lose Starbucks people, I don't know. I I feel like this is creeping in to that exact demographic that you're talking about. In right, that media. neutral middle, right? That, that neutral, neutral middle is getting punctured. I feel at least yeah, with women. And the funny thing is, I like. Angus Reed did a poll, a really good poll um, about, you know, who supports which part, right? That's right. Women, especially the younger they get, this is a very gendered issue, are more likely to support um, ceasefire efforts, you know, Palestinian movement issues, right? Also, people under the age of 55. Mm-hmm. And the younger you go, the more the the differential is. Um. So, and I, they didn't do race, but I would assume racialized youth, racialized millennials, mainly because they're what I'm seeing with these protests are is a solidarity amongst different communities who have suffered from oppression from a white supremacist state so inherently you're going to get black people you're going to get indigenous people um six too you know who have also experienced that and that's one of the reasons you see the global south revolting yes and saying uh especially latin and in south america yeah. And if there's anybody who knows about South, uh, about American hegemony and imperialism, it's South America. That's and they're right. like, no, no, they're always the first to 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 um, be in solidarity. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing that's happening. I, I think that's a silver lining and other Jewish people, too. I don't want to leave them out. Because- and that's such an important voice, too, because um. There, you know, especially when a lot of this is being labeled as anti-Semitic. And and also, I don't want to discount or dismiss the fact that there are, there have been. I will get to that. Right? <laughs> we'll get to it. Yeah. Okay. Um, but we can't dismiss or discount the fact that there are Jews marching and leading these protests and saying, not in our name. I've been brainwashed my whole life um, about uh, Israel and and I now my eyes are open and and I refuse to stand by or to have this done uh, in my name and my Jewish faith, you know, does not make room for this. Um, and I think that's such an important part of the conversation. Uh, Jews who who oppose what's happening in Israel. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk about anti-Semitism and the rise in anti-Semitism. Um, there's also a rise in Islamophobia. And you know what I wonder benefits from the rise of both. Mm. You know what I mean? Which is actually coupled with the rise of Islamophobia. So I just want to put that out there to say that um, both sets of hate, hate in general yeah. has been rising a lot exponentially since 2020. And I, I think with these two groups, it might be moving even faster or rising even yeah. faster. It's such a shame um, because uh, I, I, you know, I, I heard about the synagogues uh, being firebombed and, uh, you know, gunshots outside of a school. It seems like in Montreal in particular, it's it, that's kind of been the hotbed for some of the worst activity. And uh, that's absolutely terrifying. And, and I know from the other side, right, we've seen the impacts of 
Islamophobia as well, the fatal impacts of Islamophobia. I mean, we're in the middle of a, a hate crime trial in London. And so I, I don't dismiss or discount that um, there are uh, rising sentiments of Islam of, of anti-Semitism uh, and there are rising sentiments of Islamophobia. Um, what I take issue with is things being labeled anti-Semitic that are not, because I think that that takes away from legitimate concerns of anti-Semitism. And there is this really big attempt to make any criticism of the Israeli government anti-Semitic. And we've seen that in the TESB, in the Toronto District School Board. There were conversations around banning the term free Palestine, that the term free Palestine was anti-Semitic, that it was a call for the uh, erasure of Jews, right? And so again, it's the same thing. Same thing as the the, the uh, river to the sea chant. That why is it that a group sees a call for freedom or a call for liberation as a call for their demise? And it's, that sounds like Mandela, doesn't it? Yeah, and it harkens me back to Black Lives Matter as well, right? Yeah, this idea that the oppressor in this situation paints themselves as the victim when there is a call for the their, for, for the liberation from those who are being oppressed. And why is that? Why is it that there's an assumption? Is it because they have a right to be angry? Is it because they have a right to 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 want to inflict harm on others because of the oppression that they've endured? Um, is it because you painted this group of people, uh, these racialized people, as as violent? Um, what is it about a call for freedom from oppression that makes you you feel attacked as or threatened um why is that why is that so you know this is a question i think that we have to we have to ask ourselves um and, and wonder why that is uh why is that so offensive and threatening to you so i find that as i was saying before i find that um there is also a far right component to this mm. and i'm wondering just wondering if because Here's the thing. When you hear about hate crimes, you're like, who is committing them? Mm -hmm. And I don't want to jump to to the belief that either side is attacking either side. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, I think that is lazy thinking. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's easy. And I think it casts both the victims in this perpetrative um, uh, framework. Right. So like there have been violent incidences, taking off of hijabs, um, uh, uh, like like actually attacking people verbally. Um, there has been a guy pepper sprayed in a taxi. Yeah. Oh, shoot. Yeah. A Molotov cocktail was yeah. thrown at Beth. Um, is it Tikva? A no, synagogue. Synagogue. Yeah in Montreal. Um, a Jewish school in Montreal was targeted by gunfire. We have the worst and is it the worst anti-Muslim hate crime or one of the worst anti-Muslim hate crime? Yeah. Um, in London, the trial is right now and right. the prosecution is calling for a first degree murder conviction. The defense is saying that it's manslaughter because his mental health is in a state where he could not have have planned this out. And I'm looking at the mental health issues and I'm like, yeah, he could. <laughs> like, it's just like he's obsessive compulsive. He definitely could do it. But it, it, it's it's just this 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 coalition of hate in this cloud that's just has descended on us. Or that we could, and we have contributed to. And yeah. I think if you look at that, like, this is just yet another sort of hate supply in the system. And yeah, I want and to, to your point, right? Like, the what's the common denominator? White supremacy. They hate yes. all of us. They hate, they hate the Jews. They hate the Muslims. They hate exactly. Oh, and so to your to your point, right, is that we should be fighting uh, uh, the white hate, supremacy. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, together, together, because we are common victims in that. 
um, to the London hate crime trial. Uh, interestingly, you know, it's been nine weeks of the trial, and I could we could probably have a whole podcast about that, but mm-hmm. nine weeks of the trial. Um, and uh, Nathaniel Veltman has pled not guilty, which has forced a community to sit through nine weeks of trial, even though he admitted to the attack. He confessed that he did it because they were Muslims. And um, he wrote an entire manifesto about uh, white nationalism, anti-immigration, and all this kind of stuff. And then came to the trial and pled not guilty. Um, And even in court, what is up for dispute is not whether or not he did it. That is an agreed upon fact in the court that he was the one behind the wheel and he crashed into these um, this family on purpose. So it begs the question, number one, why go through this whole song and dance? Um, and I and I do suspect that part of it was to for him to have a platform to um, give his reasons, give his rationale for why he did what he did. And in some ways, you know, we've played right into his hand. The media has played right into his hand. Um, the other piece is around trying to get a lighter sentence. Interestingly, they did not go for, um, uh, what is it called? Not criminally responsible, an NCR, they call it, right? Mm-hmm. A not criminally responsible because of his mental status. They couldn't because a psychiatrist who evaluated him and said, yes, he has OCD and a personality disorder and he's on the autism spectrum, but he was not in a psychotic state at mm-hmm. the time of and so that rules out the possibility of him being NCR. But the, what it does is it casts doubt on this premeditation and this uh, uh, planning part. Um, they also tried to say that he may have been feeling the after effects of magic mushrooms, that he'd taken psilocybin like 40 hours before, and he may have been in a dreamlike state. But uh, it, it should be noted that the criminal code was actually changed a couple of years ago to make it a lot harder to use that as a defense, to use like mm-hmm. intoxication, high on drugs. Right, right. Threshold is much higher now. So all of that to say, you know, and, and then I'll add to that is, you know, this is the horrific um, trial that the community is having to relive. At the same time, London and Windsor, where the trial is being held, have a massive Palestinian population. Mm-hmm. Um, I think London, Ontario, something like, you know, there's 400 people, Canadians who are on the list asking Global Affairs to help them get out of Gaza. I think 100 of them are from London. Oh, wow. So this is a community that has been deeply, deeply impacted firsthand. People have lost generations. They've lost 100. I know a woman who lost 80 family members. Holy shit. From her both sides of her parents. And that number keeps going up. Another woman who said, I just stopped counting. I stopped counting and I stopped calling. Because it just became too much to bear. So they're dealing with this incredibly difficult thing happening overseas, feeling helpless and hopeless, and then dealing with this incredibly difficult thing happening at home and waiting with bated breath to see if this man is going to walk away with a manslaughter charge or a second-degree murder charge and whether or not he will face terrorism charges, which don't hold a harsher sentence, but at least will send a message, you know? Yeah. Um, the first time in Canada that a jury is is considering terrorism charges oh wow that makes it a first so anyways i've been covering i've been doing some some coverage on that um for some of uh the national and and international outlets so that's why i'm so uh well versed on the details of the case but um all of that to say that yes hate is alive and well in canada um there's no there's no uncertainty about that um and it has been an incredibly difficult time for, for for those communities. Well, I am going to pick up on your white supremacy, um, brown people thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And you talked about a platform. So let's talk about the man who has an entire platform to himself, and that's Elon Musk. So apparently Elon Musk has been accused of anti-Semitism. Uh, the incident began with a post from a conservative Jewish user who complained about anti-Semitic content on Twitter during the Gaza conflict. Uh, by the way, it will always be Twitter to me. Yeah, it's, same. It's mama named it Twitter. I'm gonna call it Twitter. Okay. <laughs> it's like Skydome. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, you're, you're Thank you. Channel, but it's like Skydome. <laughs> Thank you. 
I understand. Trust me. Um, so, uh, uh, da, 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 da. a small-time white nationalist account soon responded by attributing this anti-Semitism to minorities and blaming it on Jews, right? So there's this belief that the Jews have conspired to bring brown people in to subordinate white people through immigration policy. And that is the Jewish agenda. So that is how anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are sort of coalescing in the minds of white supremacy. Now, Elon Musk replied to this bigot, you have said the actual truth. Oh, boy. So my question is, there's anti-Semitism and then there's some motherfucking anti-Semitism. And what I, as if we look at it through a power lens, this is very concerning Yeah. And I mean, Elon Musk has also created this platform where he says everyone has an equal voice and everyone has an opportunity to talk. And even if you don't like it, um, you know, this is a place for freedom of speech, whatever that free, whatever that looks like, good, bad, ugly. Right. And I can tell you personally, (laughs) Twitter is such a different landscape than any other social media that I'm on. It is probably of all of the social media that I'm on, the most vile, the most toxic. It's the place that is not a place for a nuanced discussion. It's not a place for a productive discussion. Against my better judgment, I keep logging on. <laughs> I don't know why. We're <laughs> like masochists. There was a time where I was like, I, you know what? I'm just going to get off Twitter. I'm just going to delete my account. I just, this is not. And then I just it kept pulling me back in. Um, and so Musk has created a space for for that kind of hate to not just exist, but to thrive. Um, and it it is really, really dangerous. Um, you've you've seen it. You've seen the effects of it. Um, it's horrible. It's horrid. Um, and, and I noticed the difference. I'll post the same content on TikTok, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. And the response and the reaction will be worlds apart. Oh, I know. Right? Like, I, I think I posted a video that said Twitter will be like, you'll be like, I like cats. And people will be like, so you hate dogs? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what about people who can't afford pets? <laughs> what? Justice for raccoons. Okay? Like, <laughs> I mean, you can't make a state. Like, nobody ever wants to give you the benefit of the doubt. Everything you say will immediately be twisted and turned and vilified. Oh, and I know. Just can't win. It's horrible. Get piece written about me over a fucking dog. Are you kidding? Oh, God. Yeah. Anyway, that's my rant about Twitter. Well, okay. I can't seem to get away from <laughs> Well, for anybody who wants to catch Janella on social media, you can find me on Twitter. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I like your Instagram. You know when I started following you on Instagram? When you, this is before, you you are a new mom. So this is before yeah. you had your baby. Yeah. And um, you and your husband and your son, I believe. Yeah, my stepsons, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were, you all went on this bike ride. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, well, this is like such lovely content I'm going to follow. <laughs> Let me explain. It was COVID, okay? And we couldn't do anything. So we took to riding our bikes. That was literally the only thing. And then my husband was like, let's ride our bikes to Montreal. And I was like, you're insane. Um, Maybe let's like pick something a little more, (laughs) a little less crazy. So then we rode our bikes to Niagara um, instead from Toronto to Niagara. Uh, It was 150 kilometers. Yeah. Wow. And then. And then when we did it, we were like, oh, we did that. We could do that. So then we planned another trip and we took a trip with the boys. Um, I think we went from Grand Bend. Grand Bend? No, we went from, yeah, Grand Bend to Sarnia. Like basically Lake Huron, across uh, down Lake Huron, uh, to a two-day trip. And that was fun. And then then we bit off more than we could chew and we planned a third trip. And I, ne- I was like, I never want to look at my bike again. 
<laughs> it was hell. Oh was my god! July, we got stuck in a thunderstorm. Uh-huh. Uh, we're completely drenched by the time we got like it was. I was like, okay, well, this was fun, and this is. I'm now closing the chapter on <laughs> my life as a cyclist. My husband, on the other hand, has like caught the bug, and he's he ended up riding riding his bike to Montreal this summer. Oh, really? I will see you there. I'll dr- be driving, yeah. and I'll be there. I'll later. Bye. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So, um, congratulations on your new life and your um, <laughs> you being demuzzled. Uh, <laughs> I'm like Janella is free. When I saw you doing these TikToks, I'm like. Let freedom reign. <laughs> but I have learned a lot from them. You guys, if we, if you're on TikTok, I I highly encourage you to follow Janella. And um, she is producing some very good context. And you can always trust her because she is a reporter. And, you know. Yeah, I do try to bring my journalism, right? I do try to bring my journalism and fact check and source everything I, I put out there. Exactly. Uh, I feel feel some responsibility to to make sure that my content is factually sound. Well, at least somebody does. At least someone does. (laughs) So, Janella, I would love to have you back on. Um, And I and thank you for coming. This was fun. Yeah, it was really fun. Thanks for inviting me. Do you have anything you want to where can people find you? Yeah, it's. It's Janella Massa is on all my social media. And in particular, follow me on Instagram because I had to make a new account and I'm like crying over the followers that I lost on my old account. So I'm trying to build up my new account. It's Janella Massa, like with the I-T-S-G-I-N-E-L-A-M-A-S-S-A on Instagram, on all the socials. Yes. Yes. So follow Janella on Instagram. Otherwise, Janella, we will check you later. Thanks so much, Erica. Bye. Bad and bullshit.